Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very excited to be joined by Annie Nightingale, who is the first female DJ in Britain, the longest-serving employee of Radio 1. She is MBE, CBE, BBC. She's the queen of it all. And her new book is called Hey, Hi, Hello, which has, I think, the friendliest title of any book we've yet had on this podcast. Annie, tell me what you were trying to do with this memoir in particular, because it, it sort of goes through the story of your life a bit, but you've written about your life before. What's this one doing that's different, that's expanding it? Right, well, yeah, I've written an autobiography before. This is not an autobiography. This is about 50 years of pop culture. And the thread is, it starts in 1970 when I began with Radio 1. So that's where it starts. And then right up to now, up to Billie Eilish in 2020. So there's a lot of material interviews and with people I've met along the way and a lot of them have never been printed before or ever appeared outside of bits of it appeared on you know, I might have appeared on radio or tv so so there's a lot of material to put in to tell the story over that so you know the first interview Mark Bolan and then you know it, it kind of travels through the music as the music's progressed over the years but there's some other my adventures as well so things like i was in la when the riots happened in 1992 and that was very interesting so part of the story told by a guy who's a dj but was a firefighter when that was happening so there's his story in there there's the story of a helicopter pilot who was purely a music lover and he went out to buy a patty smith record ended up going to the Royal Navy recruiting office. The next thing he knew, he was in the Falklands in Carlos Water, being fired at right in the middle of the Falklands War. And his story, I think, is very interesting. And that actually connects with Elvis Costello's story of shipbuilding, one of the great, greatest popular songs of the 20th century, in my opinion, which was about the Falklands War. So there's, there is serious elements, and there's some very fun ones as well. So I hope it's done that has come across, you know. It's like if you and I went out for the evening and it went on and on and on, this would be the kind of area I hope we would cover. Well, I, I'd love to be able to do that. The podcast isn't quite long enough. But your, I mean, music's been a kind of passport for you to all these different areas of life, these different people. You know, you seem to have known absolutely everybody. I mean, I said the book's got this very friendly title. You've talk, you talk in the book about how when you're broadcasting, you're basically trying to phone your best friend up and say, have you listened to this? This yes. is the most amazing song. You know, in a world which is quite often quite tribal, quite bitchy, quite, you don't seem to have made a single enemy. Is that a kind of conscious strategy or are you just incredibly nice? I mean, maybe you should put, well, maybe you should put it out there and say, right... Hands up, who hates sounding nasty? I'm sure there'll be a few. I avoid the trolls 
on social media because if you appear on TV, then you find out what people really think of you. And it's usually not very pleasant because, you know, a TV sits in a, in, in a room and we all sit in judgment and go, my, oh my goodness, oh, has it she aged? Or what's that effect? Or they can't stand your voice. You can't expect to be liked by everyone. And now I've had my share of it. I think um, some story appeared a few weeks ago. I think it was about Desert Island Disco, actually, and in the mail on Sunday. And you only know, look in the comments. There you'll get it. You know, like, I can't stand this woman. And another one said, the woman that ruined the old grey whistle said. So, yeah, they're out there. Uh, believe me. But maybe uh, you don't bump into too often. But you seem to have a gift, at least, for staying on the right side of your interviewees. I mean, you say that, you know, one of the things that helped you really early on was that you were friendly with the Beatles. But also, you know, in order to stay friendly with them, they had to trust you, yeah? I mean, did that cut across a bit? Because you were a journalist, a working journalist at the time. Yeah, it, there was a, a very big dilemma. So this is Apple days, and John Lennon had met Yoko Ono and was uh, seeing her, etc. and the press didn't know. And I was in a difficult position because if I had loyalty to the newspaper I was working for, then I should have spilt the beans. But there's no way I was going to do that. I thought, you know, I owe the Beatles a lot more than the Daily Sketch or what, what, whichever one it was, or Daily Express. I used to write a pop column for them. And I felt, but what I was afraid of, I thought, this story's going to break and they will think it's me that's broken the story and that would be awful. But it wasn't me. So when they went public, I said, thank goodness for that. Because now, you know, it, the story was out there. But... I realised in the very, very beginning that I was never, ever cut out to be a real hard news journalist. I haven't got the bottle, basically. And I, you know, it, it, being a feature artist, if you like, or music critic was what I, what I really liked doing, given the opportunity. So I was chicken. The, the, actually, working as a journalist was what got you in the position, wasn't it, to start doing what you love, which is sharing, sharing music. I mean... Is this kind of extraordinary thing that you campaigned to have a female DJ at Radio 1 and they went, eventually, went, you know, OK, how about you? I mean, it's almost as if you, you know, took an opinion columnist and made them prime minister or something. <laughs> oh, don't tempt me. It was a way in and I'd been turned down for years simply because I was a woman and I was a breathtaking sexism I, in all the years I'd done quite a lot of CV presenting by then and worked on magazines and newspapers and whatever and had not actually experienced any sexism I often be the only female in the in the office but that, that was not a problem I'm you know, I, you know an enormous fun and I would say that uh working on the bright and evening artist was my university and the wit would be flying across the room it's all terrific fun so I was quite used to being a solo woman. I thought nothing of it. To me, it wasn't about gender, but so suddenly hitting this wall of uh, resistance from, from the BBC, I was absolutely, I was gobsmacked. I said, well, why? What's being a woman got to do with it? And then they come out with this amazing line and saying, because DJs are husband substitutes, which I just still, it makes me, well, I can laugh about it now. But I think the guys that were running 
the station at the time saw the DJ as being a very techie thing and they actually used to say why would a woman want to be a DJ? And my answer would be because it's the best job in the world. My MP, Karen Buck, Westminster North, says, I, I, I didn't get to know, one day she's quoted, asked, being asked if she hasn't become an MP, what would she do, like to have done with her life? And she always says, she wants to be me. So I got to know and I invited her around maybe one, I was to come and have a look at the student. So it, it, it seems to be a, a job that people now do seem to share in in my future but the weird thing is that having broken down that that, that barrier it was 12 years before there was another female dj and that really surprised me and then i thought well maybe i am the freak and that no one else wants to do this I and mean, i will never know how many applied and maybe rejected that i have no idea they don't tell you things like that you say in the book that that even now the kind of list of the top 50 earning, you know, superstar DJs around the world now, the kind of David Guetta's type figures, you know, there's still very, very few women on that list. Well, yeah, there's a difference, obviously, a massive difference between being a radio DJ and being a live DJ doing clubs and festivals and stuff like that. And that is where that still the massive barrier is with uh, radio things have got, a huge amount better. Radio 2, who you know, who were at one time quite resistant to having women on, you've now got Zoe Ball doing The Breakfast Show, you've got Sarah Cox doing Drive Time, you've got Joe Wiley, so three ex-Radio 1 people who are now in very prominent position. And on Radio 1, you've got Clara Anfo, who is really, really, who's on in the morning on Radio 1, really making it a huge impact, particularly in the Black Lives Matter arena and all of that. She's become a real force to be reckoned with, and quite rightly. And there are a lot more women on Radio 1 than there have ever been. I mean, it hasn't quite reached parity, but it's much better than it ever was. The live circuit thing, yeah, is, is still very dominant. I mean, there's women that I support who you've probably never heard of, people like Alice in Wonderland, who's actually Australian based in LA. She's a pretty amazing star. Has had quite a lot of success in America more than here. So they're out there, but there aren't that many of them. And that is a shame. Obviously a great shame, but I can't tell you exactly why. There's still a bias against them. To go back to your own experience though, as you say, 12 years before there was anyone else there, you'd got through the initial, you said there's great sexism, great resistance to you coming into the station. But once you were there, what was your experience? I mean, was it a very laddie culture, you know, among the DJs in Radio 1? Well, yeah, it wasn't so much to them. It's the engineers. Because in those days, you'd be in the studio and there'd be a technical operator through the glass. So that was your immediate audience. And they were a bit like subs going Fleet Street, who I'd had that experience. And even, you know, as a journalist, when you were phoning, copying, and people would sort of say things like, much more of this rubbish is there. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that too. It's kind of experience all that in Fleet Street, and probably just as well, because, you know, some of these guys would go, would actually not like what you were doing, or say something critical, and you're thinking, I've put my heart and soul into this show, into picking the music, and here's somebody dissing it straight away. And so I felt very much the woman driver, 
I felt very much that they were waiting for me to fail, make mistakes. And there were a lot more mistakes to make in those days. When it's vinyl, you know, you could play at the wrong speed, 45 instead of 33, play the wrong version, the album version with all the swearing on it by accident. And they, I got to a point where they thought I'd do it deliberately, um, playing, you know, on naughty track. But half the time it, it was a mistake. So and on the very first show, I stopped a record that was actually being broadcast. It was eight seconds of dead air, which is like a lifetime. And I thought, well, actually, I've blown it on the first show. But they obviously forgave me for that. But I was terrified for several years. Not about the talking bit, not about choosing the music, but the technical side of it. Because it's very intimidating atmosphere where I felt I'd got so much to prove. I wasn't that bothered about being slick, you know, being a slick dealer. But the impression was that it was more important playing the jingles at the right time and hitting the news, that side of it, which I just wanted to, to play the great music and talk about it. I mean, in fact, goodness to John Peel, because, you know, he wasn't, I think he wouldn't ever remind me saying so. He shouldn't be allowed to make mistakes as well. But he was a bloke and he played football. You know, so proper bloke. And so, I mean, the other DJs, they were fine, but they were all getting on with their own lives. It was very, very competitive. And they were competitive between each other rather than me. I mean, I wouldn't say this, I was irrelevant, but as long as I didn't kind of steal their slot or something. <laughs> you were right. They, that was what mattered. It was, you know, where you were in the schedule, who had this slot, who had that slot. And that's what they were competing with each other about. And yeah, so yeah. I wasn't quite that bothered that, well, you want to be on air. And the biggest, the best decision I made was to go from daytime to the evening. Because I realised that daytime, it's playlist. And in a way, it has to be, otherwise it would be complete chaos. But in the evening, the DJ played their own music. And that is what I wanted to do. And the whole point of it, I didn't join Radio 1 to be a celebrity. I wanted because I had this thing, enthusiasm about playing a piece of music, playing it down the phone to your friend and going, hey, I think this is great. What do you think? It's that simple. Now, you, you mentioned John Peel, actually. I mean, you, you were obviously friendly with him. There's a piece in the book where you talk about, you know, your, a, a very fond recollection of him. How did you respond when, in the last couple of years, the Me Too movement started going, look, actually... You know, some of his sexual behaviour wasn't OK. You know, his wife was 15 when he married her. He boasted about sleeping with underage groupies. He, d did that make you reevaluate your feeling towards him? I don't think so, no. It wasn't something you'd go up and talk about and say, hey, did you sleep with underage girls? I mean, it's, as you kind of wouldn't say that to a colleague and stuff. And I didn't know him back in those days. You know, it, it wasn't my experience to know what had happened to him in his very... In his youth, I no, not really. But I, oh. he's, you know, he's very, very, very much a family man. When I knew him, he had four children, a very diverse Sheila, his wife. He seemed to be, you know, have a, a perfectly great family. As you say, you, didn't, you did the music. Here's some new music, listen to this. And that's been your kind of catch. Now, one of the things that's kind of extraordinary, you know, I, I remember having, as a student, 20-odd years ago, 20, 25 years ago, your Annie On One compilation. And, ah, yeah. And, you know, adoring and thinking, oh, God, it's fantastic, this Weekender, it's got Daft Punk before they were famous, it's got, you know... 
And realizing, of course, at that time, you know, you would have been in your late 40s. And yet there you were at the absolute cutting edge of, you know, electronic dance music, you know, championing early David Bowie, you were championing the Beatles. Most of us, many of us, you know, seem to go, the music we loved when we were teenagers, that's what we all, you know, We'll be aware of new stuff, but, you know, I probably can't listen to much that's later than the Pixies these days. But you haven't had that. You still seem to be as excited about new music. There's no sort of age or generational thing in a way that obviously we know radio audiences are very generational. How is that? Why is that, do you think? Well, I don't know. <laughs> My dad, he would be listening to pirate radio station when he was 80-something. So he was a radio enthusiast, and so maybe I got it from him. And you're absolutely right. Music to most people, pop music is about their late teens, but you know, uh, your youth and that time. And as as life goes on, you become less interested. That is the norm. Other things take over. More important thing for me, that didn't happen, and I can't tell you why. I mean, that compilation, Annie and One, I have to say. That did change a lot of things because you do go in and out of fashion in this, in this uh, world. And at that time, the late 80s, probably the only time I thought, I don't, uh, uh, should I carry on with doing this? And then Acid House came along and Rave came along and that I was completely transformed by that. And so I met Jeff Barrett who runs Heavenly Records and that compilation turned everything around. And suddenly, I was cool again. I couldn't hardly believe it. But because we'd chosen the right music, which I believed in anyway, but the way it was presented, it just changed everything. It, it really did. And I, I was reborn through that music. The 90s was very special. And obviously, I'd been through the 60s when I thought, this is great, but hang on, it's not your party. You know, this is not your generation. You, you know, you, uh, sorry. But they were very inclusive. They'd say, no, come on in. They were very warm, generous people at that time. So I was kind of accepted by all of those people. And suddenly I was like DJing at very cool clubs, which I would never have expected to happen. You, had, you mentioned that your son was sharing a flat with, with someone in Primal Scream as well. Well, he was a manager. He and they were uh, very influential in that. And funnily enough, it was... It, Farmer Screen's daughter, Dee Dee, who was a 13-year-old, who told me about Billy Eilish, because they're family friends and so on. But um, I was living in Brighton too, which is a very hub. Brighton was very actively involved in that whole Asher House scene. So that's partly why I became involved. But yes, obviously, family connection. And it was clear to me straight away that this was very, very exciting. And this was a music revolution and a social revolution. And I think people now realise that the 90s were very special. And obviously I had known, I'd experienced in the 60s, it was a bit unfair to, <laughs> to have a second bite of the cherry, but they allowed me in. Yeah. Um, that, now that album does have a kind of punning title, you know, is it Annie on One or Annie on One? Um, did you get involved with the drugs as well? Um, if I did, I wouldn't be telling you. Ah, fair enough. I, I have to ask, only because you have that passage about John Lennon saying, well, if someone asks, I'll tell them the truth. Um, yeah. He didn't work for the BBC, did he? That's true. That's true. Well, we'll, we'll move on. Um, your 
a scholarship girl to school. You're obviously very well read. You know, you talked on Desert Island Discs about wanting to take Catch-22 and your enthusiasm for Shakespeare. Are lyrics important to you when you're listening to songs? I mean, do you respond to songs like poems? In this book, there's an interview with with Mark Boland, which is actually very funny. But interestingly, in this interview, in the book, he says it's about getting, getting the, the melody and he says, finally, she subs it and keep repeating it over again. And he said, he said, well, you know, the Beatles lyrics aren't that interesting. It's always the melody that counts. And I think there are three elements when you listen to something new, which is, I know within 10, 15 seconds if it's going to work or not. And nowadays, you have got to have that hook really early on because people's, you know, you've got to grab people really straight away. And I, you know, people send you tunes and say, what do you think? And there's a really good bit right at the end. And you go, why don't you put that right at the beginning? Grab people's attention straight away. So it's actually all those things. It's the rhythm and the beat and the melody and the lyric. They all have to work. There's been one tune that I've been going on about since the pandemic, which sort of, I don't know where it went in the chart thing, but I don't tend to look at that very often. But I persuaded Radio One to they put it on the Best Weekend record. Then it went on what's called the C list. Then it went on the B list. And it was by two guys from Sub Focus and Wilkinson. And it was called Just Hold On. And it had a female vocal. And it just summed up to me, summed up how we were all feeling, which is, you know, we have lost so many, but just hold on, you know. And it really touched me. And I persuaded, a colleague in, on KCRW station in LA, I said, see whether you think, again, it's that thing about, I think this has got something, what do you think? It's something like that, that might, that, that it feels, it sums up what is going on. And obviously what's happening now, as we're X number of months into all this, is that the lyricists, known lyricists like Mike Skinner of the Streets, and Eminem are beginning, we're beginning to hear the music or the lyrics of, about what we're going through. And I obviously find that very interesting. And grime is about lyrics and, and you know, a lot of it's very nearly poetry. So yes, it's very important, but you've got to have the tune as well. That's the whole magic and the beats. Those three elements, I think, will you have to have that in the book you talk to Elvis Costello about shipbuilding and he you know, he says something in that like I think I, I, I've never written a better lyric well exactly I mean that to me I mean that summed up that period the Falklands War there's a transcript in the book of an interview that I did with him about that song or it was called is it worth it about was the Falklands War worth it it was a documentary made by BBC Scotland looking at the whole you know the morality and saying, well, whether you believe that the Falklands War is right or wrong, the shipbuilders, you know, the shipyards were going out of, out of business. Here is, you know, they're building new ships for a new war. Is that right or is it wrong? So that's why, you know, Elvis has sort of come from a shipping family. I don't mean to own them, uh, quite the opposite. So he said seafaring was in his family. So he put a kind of moral question on that, which is a very interesting angle and made you think about that in a very different way. 
and and very beautifully sung by Robert Wyatt. I mean, it, it was stunningly special to me. Something like that. And they don't actually, they, they very rarely become number one. They don't become necessarily big hits, you know, but they're important. And things like um, Spasticus Autisticus by Ian Dury. You know, you can say quite serious things in pop songs, but not everybody's going to enjoy it. One of the really kind of intriguing th things you drop in the, the book is to say that astronomy is one of your big things. And I was kind of intrigued by you saying Catch-22 was your favourite novel and intrigued by the discovery that you're a secret astronomer. I mean, how did you get into that? At school, I had a very good physics teacher and I got very interested in eclipses. And I would, as a child, go outside, look at the stars at night and think, how can anything go on forever? What is beyond space? What is beyond when is time begin? That whole thing... On, you know, I think most people have that, that as well. I cannot settle my the fact that I don't understand infinity. I obviously haven't got the brain power to understand. What I'm hoping is as the human race evolves, our brains get bigger and, and that most more people will be able to understand the concept of infinity. So that is a, is a thing about space. I find it very romantic. I love the idea that radio waves, you know, you do a radio program, how do you know where it's going? Would it, is it going to reach you know, some weird little planet somewhere. I know it's kind of ridiculous, but I am fascinated by, by astronomy and, you know, the, the moon and the tides. And I think we know so little. If my maths had been better, I would have followed it more strongly, but I was let down by the mathematical side. Well, you'd have to consult Brian May. He's <laughs> sort of in your world, isn't he? And he went to the school next door to mine. Not at the same time, but he went to Hampton Grammar, which is next to my school, which is called Lady Eleanor Hollis. Funnily enough, I'm in different years, so I didn't meet him then. Parallel lives. Looking back, you know, to do this book, you were revisiting your younger self, often quite literally, you know, on these, these old tapes. I mean, there's a lovely description of you trying to decode an interview with Bob Marley with, with his music playing in the background. Yeah. But, you know, how do you feel re-encountering your younger self? One of the things that comes through is you keep saying... Oh, I had a terribly posh voice then. Well, yeah. Interestingly, Dusty Springfield, who's also another, I think, very, was a very much later in her life. I mean, very late in her life interview. So I'm very, I very prized that interview. But she said that before she even became a singer or anything, she did very well in elocution. That she was like fourth in England. I mean, I was. I'd had elocution lesson. Why I don't know. My parents decided that that was imp important, and so I did speak very, very clearly. But you know, people's accents change over time extraordinarily. I noticed Prince William, who's I think is actually a natural broadcaster, because I've seen him on Zoom, and he's really good at it. And I'm going to go right off the point, I'm going to forget what we said now, but when I got the MBE, you know, you're not supposed to speak to the Queen first. But I was thinking, well, she must be so bored, you know, blah, 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 um, have you come far, all that stuff. So I thought, well, I'll say something first, you know, just say something that might interest her. So I said, I'm a DJ at Radio 1, and I said, by the way, uh, you're... Um, grandson 
Prince William. When he was on his gap year in Chile, I think, I think they did some kind of press junket thing and he was seeing DJing. You know, so he obviously had a go at that and enjoyed it. And so, so I said this to the Queen, so I said, your, your grandson really enjoys DJing, maybe you ought to be a DJ. And she said, like that famously, one word to me, which was probably, that was it. That was a word. And you're not supposed to speak to her first. I did. So did Nick Grimshaw, who's on Media One, is a great friend of mine. But in terms of posh voice, Prince William talks much more unroyally. It's to do with the vowel sounds. And it wasn't a kind of, oh, I'm going to be uh, unposh. But yeah, there was obviously an element of that because all of us, I think our voices change over the decade. You know, when you hear, old BBC announcers and all the A's turned it into E's and experience and they talk completely differently laughably I find them quite yeah. comical but I think all of us our voices change over the you know you don't talk like people did in in the 1950s if you like it's quite that's why I love watching old documentaries and hearing how people spoke then it, I think it's a and evolved, it wasn't a kind of, oh, I have to fake now. I mean, I talk the way I'm talking to you now. Yeah, actually, I did get attacked by the Daily Mail once for clipping vowels. So you can't win. You know, you're either too posh or you're not posh enough so, you know, for some people. Yeah, playing that the take back of the Bob Marley, I was aware that uh, I did sound, you know, very Newsnight, you like. Now, as someone, I, I should just end by saying, as someone who's obviously loved and embraced and enthused about music in so many genres, from, you know, early rock and roll to blues to reggae to rave, is there a sort of heartland for you, do you think? I mean, is there a sort of like, you've done all your shows, you come home, you're settling down on the sofa, what sort of music will you be turning on? I get asked this question. I am downloading new music all the time. I haven't got time to listen to. Unless, say someone wants a playlist put together of, you know, say, right, give us 10 tunes from the late 90s. Okay, that's fun to do. But actually, there's so much to listen to that you'll never, ever get it done. And so I would feel guilty. My pleasure is finding, finding new, new, new music. It's not a sort of, a thing you do half the time and then go and listen to it's full time it's absolutely full time and I'm happy to do that because if I was listening to something I already know well I already know that I've heard that so I want to hear what I haven't heard yet I want to hear you know as John Peel used to say you want to hear something you've never heard before that is the quest all the time and the only thing I might go back to is Old comedy, funny enough. That might be a bit my um, my if I have a, a a moment of not listening to new music because you, you you know after a few hours you've got to make sure that you're giving it your all because otherwise you're not being fair to the person who's made that tune. I've got very odd taste in comedy, but that is my recreation if you like. Sometimes it's comedy. What's your What's your odd taste? And I love Frankie Boyle and I love Nish Kumar. I'm, that's my you know, other thing is, is um, you know, a very strong political comedy. 
the darker the better. That's my, if you like, my entertainment. Well, long may the quest for the next big thing continue. And Annie, thank you very much for your time. Hey, hi, hello is out, I think, now. Audiobook as well. Excellent. Read by you? Yes. You can get the book and hear the ABBA story. It's worth it.